I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired by Interfaith Voices. If you're just joining, earlier in the program, religion scholar Stephen Prothrow described editor Eugene Xman's influence on America's religious identity. For five decades, Xman oversaw religion titles published by Harper Row. Today, they're known as Harper Collins. Xman cultivated writers from then unfamiliar traditions and philosophies like Buddhism and the Vedantic traditions. He encouraged writers to share their beliefs in a way that could be universally understood. Prothero argues, thereby making room for the pluralism of identity and questioning. Today, nearly one-third of Americans identify as the spiritual but not religious. What does it mean to be spiritual but not religious is the question I put to theologian and author Dr. Linda Mercadante. She's part of a generation of Americans who felt comfortable exploring this question as she herself was coming of age in the 1960s and 70s. I started out in a family, a mixed faith, no faith family. So I essentially was a proto spiritual but not religious person because I felt that the people around me that were religious had some things that I didn't have, and I uh, was kind of went on a search to find them. It wasn't without complications because uh, I did go through a period of atheism, and I went through a period of being uh, spiritual but not religious, and then I finally connected with... uh, a factor of organized religion that made intellectual sense to me. And so I, uh, I stuck with that for quite a long time. You know, question authority, that was the motto. And uh, the authority really ranged all over the place, and it included organized religion. It was not unlike today. After a series of experiences that included living in an ashram and backpacking across Europe, Mercadante was drawn to the Presbyterian tradition, She decided to earn a doctorate in theology at Princeton and taught seminary for two decades. Having been uh, spiritual but not religious myself, I heard a lot of stereotypes and putting down uh, of them and um, just really disparaging and not listening to people that said they were spiritual but not religious. Now, by then I had committed to something, but having been through that journey, I thought, wait a minute, that's not fair. People were saying they were salad bar, they were eclectic, they didn't have beliefs, they were too lazy to get up in the morning to go to church. The church made fun of them, the media made fun of them. Some people glorified them and said they were like the you know, salvation of the world. And I thought none of that was really true. It was during that time that she began to see the need for more research and understanding in the culture about the growing numbers of Americans identifying as she once did. With the support of the Henry Luce Fellowship, Mercadante embarked on a listening tour. She gathered research, stories, and narratives and compiled them in her 2014 book, Beliefs Without Borders, Inside the Minds of the Spiritual but Not Religious. I went across the United States. I did some work in Canada, a little bit of work in Mexico, a little bit of work in Scotland. And what was amazing was how common the beliefs, the emerging beliefs were, and and common in what they rejected from organized religion, in particular Christianity. (music) 
what I learned was that the basic stereotypes were not good, not accurate. People in churches said, if they were sympathetic, what did we do to hurt them? Of course, we hurt them. That's why they left. That I didn't find that. Uh, people that were disparaging them said, oh, they have no beliefs. They don't believe anything. They're too lazy. They're, you know, anarchic. I didn't find that. So I basically dispelled a lot of the stereotypes and I found an emerging meta narrative of common beliefs. Sociologically, the people were quite different from each other. They came from different socioeconomic classes, different parts of the country, different age groups, different ethnicities. But in their beliefs, this was amazing. In their beliefs, they were so in common. I could take one of my interviewees, let's say a yoga instructor from Boulder, Colorado, and sit her down with my unemployed factory worker interviewee from rural Ohio, and they would find a lot in common that they believed. It was just amazing. And some of the things were uh, they rejected the word God. They didn't believe there was a, um, a God out there, up there, you know. They felt it was um, that there was something bigger than themselves, but not necessarily outside their world. It was uh, what we call in theology imminent. In other words, here and now and uh, benign, benevolent, but not having a personality, not a spirit that you could have a relationship with. And so that's why a lot of people have switched to saying the universe. And I'm sure you've heard that. Yes, I have heard that. I'm curious. Do you have a sense from your research? What, if any role, these books played in the spiritual but not religious transformation that you've been researching? Well, I know books were extremely important. A lot of the people I spoke to were reading the same books. They could have come from uh, rural Ontario or uh, upstate New York, and they would mention the same books. So that was amazing. But, you know, not everybody is a reader. And so there's actually uh, unrecognized institutional support for these new themes. Think about, uh, for instance, cancer care or nurses in hospitals. You may find a nurse that does Reiki on you. Well, she probably didn't get that in her regular nursing training, but it's accepted. You, If you go to cancer care, like after care for cancer patients, um, there's something uh, you'll find them doing um, meditation, mindfulness, you, yoga. You were, there was something you wrote that really struck me. You knew that there were religious roots or theological presuppositions in many of these, as you describe them, offerings. But you wrote, but whenever I asked from what tradition or religion this practice originally came, I received the same answer. Oh, no, this is not religious. It's spiritual. In fact, it's true for all religions. It predates all religion. I'm not saying I disdained their good intentions or spurn their help, but I knew they were trying to make their offerings generic so anyone might take them. I appreciated and enjoyed many of these opportunities, but yet you knew there was more to the story. That's right. Um, because it's a cultural shift. In the past, there was something called secularization theory as the society would uh, get more and more technological and consumerist, that religion would fade away. It, it hasn't actually faded away. It's bled into the culture and it's become generic and it's become uh, a commonality of themes. So like you have all the truth inside you or you have everything you need or, you know, everything has a reason or a purpose. So these are common themes, but they have tried to disassociate them from organized religion because organized religion is not accepted anymore as a valid place to find truth or to find meaning. 
Obviously, for some people, it still is. But for a lot of people, it isn't anymore. But there's unrecognized institutional support for these new themes that are emerging through the spiritual but not religious movement. Mm. Could we influence cultural ideas about belief and wisdom traditions with just books today? Oh, no, it would definitely not just be books today. Uh, We have so many more resources for information. We're, in fact, inundated by information. That's kind of what helps proliferate the spiritual but not religious movement is that it seems to be so flexible and allows for many different sources as opposed to just maybe your own religious tradition if you had one. Hmm. Have we hit a saturation point in our culture? No, I don't. I definitely don't think we've reached a saturation point. I think these ideas will proliferate more and more until they become extremely common everywhere. And in fact, that's already happening because you can go to a Protestant church and hear some of these same themes, and that will only increase. By some of the same themes, you mean the changing in language, the describing of the divine as the universe? Mm-hmm. Yes. And the rejection of certain concepts that were identified with Christianity, like uh, original sin or actual sin, sin in general, or heaven, hell, these things are falling away, even in churches. Linda, I understand you've undertaken a new qualitative survey research project, and you're looking at a very specific group. Tell me about it. Yes, I do qualitative research Quantitative is the data, and then qualitative is the depth that really shows the story that the numbers don't show as well. They're both essential to research, of course. But anyway, what I have discovered is that clergy are leaving the ministry in increasing numbers. Some of the data says about 250 clergy leave each month, and many of these are pre-retirement. These are not necessarily people that are retiring. And then another research says that 42% of clergy, when asked if they'd like to leave, they say yes. So uh, I decided to start interviewing them. The clergy that I've spoken to so far have um, have left the ministry, and many now identify as spiritual but not religious. The reasons they leave are, are many, but they kind of cluster around a few common themes, which is um, the uh, institutionalization of organized religion. They don't like that because it seems to be less human. The consumerist uh, mentality where congregations just want what they want, but they don't necessarily want to be um, encouraged to go beyond the, the comfort zone. Some have said that. Some have said that they were pushed out by their congregations, but a lot of them don't want to identify as religious. Now, I when I was doing my original interviewing, uh, uh, people in the clergy would hear me uh, announce my project, come up to me, take me aside and whisper to me, you should interview me because I'm really spiritual but not religious. I saw the stirrings of it in my earlier research project that, that became the book. I'm wondering if someone who's listening to our conversation who might fit this description, if they're interested in sharing their story, would you want to hear from them? Love to hear from your audience who, who might fit that profile. They don't necessarily have to say they are definitely spiritual, but not religious, but most are leaning in that direction. I see their beliefs are changing. And so this thing is not going away. Based on the conversations you're having and the trends you're observing, why do you think this is happening? Why is disaffiliation and identifying as spiritual, but not religious now happening among the clergy? I think there's pressure from the culture to accommodate to diversity and increasing options 
and the influence of other religious traditions and practices. If they feel their denomination doesn't allow that, that, that's a big motivator for them not to stay anymore. There was a number of motivators, but of course, ministers in general face a lot of stress. They get very isolated, and then they have to go through institutional hoops that they have to jump through. So there's a lot of reasons that are beyond the culture that are just integral to what it means to be a pastor and a clergy person. But the pressure from the culture, I think, is equally strong. There's no doubt in my mind or any other researcher's mind that religion is going to change. It's already happening. And, you know, religion has always changed. One of my my uh, background is in history of doctrine, which might sound dull, but actually it's how beliefs have changed according to the context that they're in. That doesn't mean they become completely different, but they have to become understandable to the current culture. And so that's happening. Religion has provided a lot of social capital. And of course, anything that's capable of great good is capable of great evil. And so, you know, you see the good and the bad in organized religion, but there is a lot of good in there that we're going to miss and we will need things to replace it. Ideally, it's a cradle to grave environment. And that's very comforting for a lot of people. The things that are coming up now to replace it are not that comprehensive. Most of the things that have taken over the functions and the services of religion are things that are pretty functional um, and often fee for service, like uh, CrossFit, like fitness, like yoga class, like um, meditation, mindfulness classes, things you have to pay for. I do all those things, but they don't replace not just the cradle to grave community, but also the, the meaning structure that religion provides. I'm not just touting religion. I'm just saying, let's be realistic and see what we're losing as well as what we might be gaining. You come from a family of multi-faith traditions at a time where it wasn't cool or hip to have multi-faith traditions. And you describe kind of that experience growing up where your parents created, you describe it as almost like a no religion zone. Your mom was Jewish and your dad was um, Italian Catholic. And here you are today. When you look back on your life, your journey, what are some key lessons or takeaways that you feel allowed you to be able to explore and come to the place that you are now? What I was yearning for, I think, was a place that I could find a sense of meaning, a purpose for my life, and also answers or at least indications for the big, big questions that functional aids don't give you. And by that, I mean, what happens, you know, death, what happens after death? The meta narrative that a religion provides is something that I was wishing for. Also, the reality uh, and the origination of evil, that is not something that you can come by easily. To my mind, having been told a lot about the Nazi Holocaust by my Jewish relatives, I needed to find out how could people that were pretty, pretty civilized, the Germans, do this to another group of people right in their own community, right in their own country. That question just made me crazy because I, I, I didn't have any answers. Nobody gave me answers. So I sought them out in religion. I've got plenty of resources to help me understand uh, the idea of evil, uh, the, the idea of meaning and identity. Those things were things I found by, being, by committing to something. It, you can't just be a shallow uh, searcher and expect to get a lot of depth in your life. We're in a crisis of identity, we're in a crisis of meaning, we're in a crisis of longing. 
longing for the good, longing for something you can hang on to. And for better or worse, religion does specialize in those things. Dr. Linda Mercadante, thank you for joining me on Inspired by Interfaith Voices. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Dr. Linda Mercandante is a distinguished research professor at Maretta Methodist Theological School in Ohio. She was named a loose scholar for her work examining the beliefs and practices of today's spiritual but not religious, which led to her publishing Belief Without Borders, Inside the Minds of the Spiritual but Not Religious. That's all for this week's show. If you're interested in learning more about our guest and the survey that she's conducting, head over to this week's episode page at our website at interfaithradio.org. While you are there, you can also read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find the podcast wherever you listen. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out, leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. This week's episode was produced by Kimberly Winston and Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision and MC Yogi for our theme music, additional sounds by Blue Dot Sessions, and audio binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices, which relies on the generous support of our listeners and donors to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week. (laughs) 